You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. All right, my friends, we're going to turn towards the Gospel of John together. We are going to read this story, but just the first 16 verses, Becca's going to share this with us, and then we'll tell the rest of the story in the context of the message. And thanks, Becca, for reading. The Death of Lazarus Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is Mary, whose brother Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one who you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So when he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thank you, Becca. In the fall of 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to one of his friends that he hadn't seen in a while, and it includes one of his famous quotes. He was writing to an old friend, a French scientist named Jean-Baptiste, and one of the things that he wrote about as he checked in with his friend was this. He said, Our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Maybe you've heard that line before. Interestingly, he wrote that letter. I didn't know this. I was just looking some of this up this week. He wrote that whole letter in French because his friend was a French speaker, and it was later translated into English in his memoirs. But even more interesting is its context because usually we just hear that famous little line at the end that's quoted. But he finishes that letter by telling his friend, my health continues much as it has been for some time except that I grow thinner and weaker so that I cannot expect to hold out much longer. And five months later, Benjamin Franklin died. So that famous quote of his, nothing is certain except death and taxes, was almost written in a prophetic sense as he would soon die. And I thought there was a little irony in that he died then in April, tax month, on the 18th. So... Death is, is a funny thing. It is complicated. It's difficult. It can be tragic. 
it's sorrowful, and it's inevitable. But few of us think about our own death on a regular basis, or perhaps even much at all. Because of my job as a pastor, I get to see firsthand examples of families or individuals who were prepared for death, either logistically or spiritually, or others who are not. And today I'm going to ask you to think about your own death, which, unless the Lord returns first, is inevitable, and what it means in light of that to live. Today's the last Sunday in our post-Easter message series called That You May Believe, The Seven Signs of John. This is the seventh and climactic sign, the raising of Lazarus. And it's this powerful, moving story that commands our attention. Because people do not come back from the dead. But Lazarus did, and Jesus is the one who did it. He does this miracle so that you and I may draw the right conclusion about him. So we'll pick up the story, and I'm going to recap a few of the things that we read with Becca And then we'll tell the rest of the story as we go through the message, verses 1 through 44. So as it begins, verse 1, we hear about this man named Lazarus from a small town called Bethany, which was less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Lazarus has a couple of sisters, as Katie previewed with the kids. And we might remember them from back in Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha. And that's the story, and the Beginner's Bible portrays it so well, where Martha is busy hosting and with the housework, and she's in the kitchen, and she's irritated with her sister Mary, who is just sitting there listening to Jesus. We're also reminded here in John 11 of what will happen in the next chapter, in John 12, where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. So just by way of summary, a couple things that we know about this family. Number one, there are clues in the various stories where they come up that tell us that they were wealthy. And by the way, most of us, by global standards, would be in the same category as them. If your income is at or above the median American household income, I'm not going to quantify it with a number, but if, if you are at the median or above, then you are among the wealthiest 4% of the population in the world. All people need Jesus, including the affluent. And sometimes that is the most difficult group to reach. They can be the most lackadaisical about the gospel because the affluent really don't need anything, at least materially. But Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they are wealthy and they are faithful followers of Jesus. And that's the other thing I wanted to point out about this family They're not just followers of Jesus, but they're also friends. And it's an interesting thing to think about. We know Jesus didn't have favorites. He didn't play favorites. But did he have besties? Did Jesus have BFFs? Apparently he did. Among the disciples, for example, he appears to have a different kind of relationship with Peter, James, and John. And among his friendships, he has this different kind of friendship with this trio of siblings in Bethany. And some of you and some of our Y groups have watched some of The Chosen, this mini TV series. And if you remember, Jesus affectionately refers to Lazarus as Laz, which 
I think is a plausible detail because we often have nicknames for those that we're closest to. So when the sisters send word to Jesus in verse 3, they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. And that's sort of their way of saying, Lord, one of your best guys, one of your best friends is sick. And verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So you can see John is just underlining the affection in this story. And we imagine many times that Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem and he would have stopped in Bethany and he would have hung out at their house or shared a meal together. Many happy memories. And yet now the news out of Bethany is quite serious. Lazarus is deathly sick. And yet look at what Jesus says in response to the news in verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. And there we get this first little preview of what's coming. This story will not end in death, but God is going to use it for His glory, specifically for the glory of His Son. But what does that actually mean for something to be for God's glory? It means it will bring Him honor and praise. It means He will get all the credit. It'll be for the fame of His name. People will see how awesome and wonderful and mighty God actually is. Esther and I had a chance yesterday to take our five oldest kids down to the Twins game. And we were way up in the nosebleeds, but we were in the shade, so nobody was complaining. And when our pitcher, when the Twins pitcher, Joan Duran, came out of the bullpen and took the field in the eighth, you'd have thought that they were announcing the second coming or something. I mean, the theme music that swelled up and all the imagery on the screen and the lights are going off. And I probably sounded very old when I said to my kids, back when I was a kid, I said, we didn't have any of this walk-up music. You just went out there and did your job. But we're talking here about the glory of God, and somehow yesterday reminded me of these things. So this news gets to Jesus, and at this point in the story, we know from the previous chapter, he is way out east of Jerusalem, beyond the Jordan River, and he stays put. Now the disciples are probably relieved, because a chapter earlier, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he'd almost been stoned to death. So when he doesn't get up and go to Lazarus, they probably think, well, he's very wise. He's playing it safe. But after two more days, he tells his disciples, all right, guys, it's time to go back to Judea. And they say, back to Judea? We can't go back there. They just about killed you last time you were there. To which Jesus says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Now, the disciples are a little slow on the uptake here, and they think that he's talking literally about sleep. And so they say, well, we're so glad to hear he's sleeping, and, you know, that's good for the body, and why don't we just let him sleep and we don't bug him? And so in verse 14, Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, and pay attention to this part, so that you may believe. This phrase just keeps finding us in John's gospel. It's the whole reason John says that he wrote this gospel and reported these signs. We've 
previewed it almost every week, but just to show us again, John 20, 31, at the very end of the gospel, John says, but these signs, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so I have a little challenge for you. It's for all ages, but I'm thinking especially of the kids and students who are with us. How many times today in our message will you see the word believe in the story of Lazarus? And I want to challenge you to count them up. You can use your bulletin and just check them off as we go. Every instance of believe or believing, you want to give it a tally mark. To believe... It's one of the most important words in John's gospel. It's perhaps the word in John's gospel. Lazarus dies, and Jesus basically says, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there to stop it. And why would he say something like that? Well, it's for this reason, so that you may believe. And now we move into the part of the story we haven't read yet, starting in verse 17. On his arrival, it's in Bethany now, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So between Jesus' initial delay and then, of course, the travel time, by the time he arrives, not only is Lazarus dead and buried, but the funeral customs, which you know were multi-day events, are well underway. It says that many people had come from Jerusalem. And I want you to remember, this is a wealthy, prominent family so there's a lot of people in attendance, and a Jewish funeral in the first century was a loud and lengthy occasion. So even a poor family would have been expected to hire at least two flute players, specifically the flute, and at least one professional mourner. That's right, they hired musicians to hang around your house. Imagine your kids with their recorders from school walking around. And they hired a wailing woman to lead the whole company, all of your relatives, in crying. Cultural differences are so fascinating to me. They'd probably hear about our funeral customs, you know, bars and lemonade and coffee, and they would think we're the strangest people that they had ever heard of. So Jesus is approaching Bethany, and Martha hears he's close, and she runs out to meet him. And we see initially Mary stays back. And then we have this tender exchange between Martha and Jesus. Verse 21, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And what Martha says is, I think, so poignant as an expression of faith, but you can see it's also tinged by grief and the loss of her brother. She doesn't know why Jesus waited. You know, he could have done something about this. He'd healed the blind man, and he'd healed that guy at the pool of Bethesda and the official's son. Why not one of his best friends? And yet even now, she knows, not knowing the end of the story, but she knows this story doesn't have to be over. So Jesus says to her in verse 23 as you follow along, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, what Martha is talking about is the Jewish understanding, this Old Testament understanding that one day God would raise the dead and human history as we know it would come to a close. 
It's often called the day of the Lord, where the righteous are appointed to life, the unrighteous to judgment and separation from God, and God's sovereign power would be revealed throughout all the earth. And Martha's saying, when she hears this from Jesus, yes, I know the day of the Lord's coming, and on that day that Lazarus will be raised from the dead. That's not what Jesus is talking about, is it? Verse 25, among the most famous of Jesus' words. If there's one thing you want to have highlighted or circled in your Bible in John 11, it's this. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And kids, are you counting up the words? For all of us, do you see what Jesus is doing with this answer? We've seen things like this before in John's Gospel. The woman at the well in John 4. The woman is talking about drawing water from the well. And Jesus says, if you knew who it is that's asking, you would ask for living water and I would give it to you. Or in John 6, the people are enamored after the feeding of the 5,000. And they're talking about the manna that came from Moses. But Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry, and whoever drinks from me will not be thirsty. And now in John 11, Martha is talking about the resurrection of the dead. She's talking about the day of the Lord. And her theology is correct, but she is missing the more immediate point. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just this future eschatological event, but it is here and now in the person of Jesus. And he invites her to move from holding a religious doctrine, true as it may be, he invites her to move from holding a religious doctrine to a personal trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? That he himself is the one who holds the power over the grave and who resurrects the dead. And he stands before her now. Because when you believe like that, when you really trust in Christ, then death just becomes a bump in the road in your story. It has no say over you. When you truly believe, then even though one day your earthly life and the breath in your lungs will pass out of your body, that same earthly body one day will be raised up to new life. But Jesus is also saying, you don't even have to wait until that day. He says that even now, you are filled with resurrection life that not even death can put a stop to. Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? And she says without hesitation, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. What follows from this point on is really just the proof in the pudding to what Jesus has just claimed and to what Martha has just professed. The sign, the miracle, is the visible verification that these things are true. So first, there's this exchange with Mary, 
she then too comes to talk with Jesus. We don't have time for it today, but I encourage you to pick up John 11 today or tomorrow, and you can read this beautiful conversation that Jesus has with Mary. And then finally, Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb. He says, take away the stone. Now Martha objects immediately. She objects and she says, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. And Jesus then objects immediately right back, and he says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they take the stone away. And it doesn't say, but I would imagine that when they rolled that stone away and they opened the tomb, that there was in fact a bad smell. Lazarus had been dead for four days and death had taken its course and the body had begun to decay. They roll away the stone. Jesus looks up and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Here it is. That they may believe that you sent me. And with that, he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And it's been said that had Jesus not specified Lazarus by name, then all the tombs would have given up their dead that day. That is how powerful the voice of Jesus is. How authoritative his word is. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus does. He comes out of that tomb and he's wrapped still. Now you have to contrast this, right, to what Katie previewed with the kids. All right, Lazarus is still bound in the grave clothes. And he comes out and Jesus says to all those who are standing there, take off his grave clothes and let him go. What does it mean to believe? And now specifically, that question is not asked of Martha, it's asked of you. What does it mean for you to believe? Martha did already define it for us as a personal trust in Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah of the world. That's what we mean when we say, He is my Lord and my Savior. But I'm wondering, if John wrote down these seven miracles for you to believe that, then what does that actually mean? Some of us find ourselves distracted by wealth and the things that in our part of the world and in our place come along with affluence. I was watching an episode of the Gilmore Girls with my oldest daughters. There was this grumpy old guy who died and who had stipulated that he was to be buried with all of his favorite things. But there was so much stuff in the casket that they couldn't get the lid to close. Some of us have a hard time letting go of our stuff or of the things that fill our time. And we just don't really have much room for Jesus. Others of us struggle with belief because we don't know what to do about our doubt. You might have a hard time believing what you can't see. Or you might have certain things in the Bible that you don't understand. Or you might have certain questions 
that come out of science class. It could be any number of things. And you wonder, well, can I believe if I still have these questions of doubt? For others of us, it's less of an academic angle. And your objections come from a hurting heart. You've had a loss that you can't explain. Or you wonder why fill-in-the-blank happened. Where was God in this in my life? And you have the reality of a wound in your life that makes you wary of God and His supposed plans. And still for others, you have identified as a Christian for a long time. And somewhere along the way, you have confused believing with religion. Or you've confused believing with church going. You've lost your spiritual fervor. Or maybe you never had it to begin with. Believing, believing this key word that we've looked at, if you're honest, is only moderately important in your life. And yet deep down, you have this growing sense that the things of this world, they are not permanent. And they are ultimately not satisfying you. I want you to know today, wherever you relate to these questions of belief, that you don't have to have all the answers to believe or to deepen your discipleship. But you do need to see the One who stands before you in the Gospel today and says, do you believe? And that you would be among the ranks of Martha or Mary or Lazarus And you would say, yes, this is where I stake my claim. This is my Lord and Savior. My sins are forgiven. My death will not be the end. But this Jesus, in fact, calls me out of death into life. That's my prayer for you. And let's do that now as our worship team comes forward. Let's bow our heads. Lord, as we conclude this study in John's Gospel, first of all, we thank You, Lord, for the riches of Your Word. We thank You that You inspired John to record these things so that we may believe. And Lord, we acknowledge death can be a tricky thing and belief can be a tricky thing. And yet I pray, Lord, that Your voice, not mine, but really Your voice on this Pentecost Sunday, the voice of Your Holy Spirit, would just cut through any of the confusion or the clouds or the hesitancy and You would speak with crystal clear clarity to us. Lord, You are inviting each one in this room to believe and to get up and to follow You. And I pray, Lord, that this gathering of people would be characterized by men, women, and children who hear Your call, who stake their claim, and who choose to believe. Lord, would You deepen our walk with You the unofficial beginning of summer. And I pray that this season we would come to know You and love You more and more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.